I've been reading a book called One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And it's a glimpse into the horrific suffering that millions experienced in forced labor camps under the gulag of the Soviet Union. Uh, Lenin created them, Stalin made them worse. Not just criminals, but anybody who questioned Stalin's leadership ended up serving time in these labor camps. Even Solzhenitsyn himself. For some letters questioning Stalin's policies, he got eight years of forced labor and three more exile. One day is just that. It's, it's an account of what one day was like in these camps. There was a bitter cold, 27 plus degrees below zero, without sufficient clothing. The food was nothing but a slop of porridge. Hunger would drive many of them to animal-like behavior. Forced labor was cruel. Grueling tasks in the cold without rest. The guards forced them by intimidation. They threatened them with punishments and holding cells. If you were sick, too bad. Personhood was gone. You're, you're just a number. And the whole account is, is just dehumanizing. And it's difficult for us to imagine what, what he and millions others suffered, especially with all of our freedoms. But that's why Solzhenitsyn wrote what he did. He wanted the world to know the cruelty. He wanted the world to see what he saw, to feel what he felt, to get in his shoes and look around at the suffocating tragedy that millions suffered under Stalin. Remember them, in other words. Don't repeat them. And don't embrace worldviews that lead to them. Lamentations functions the same way for the people of God. Just as one day shook the USSR, so lamentations should shake us. It should rattle us to the core. We weren't there when Jerusalem fell in 587 B.C. Even when you read about it in 2 Kings 25, you, you, just get a, you, you don't really get a sense of its awfulness. Uh, you get the facts, the bare facts of what happened, but you don't really feel. You do feel in Lamentations. The author walks you through his experience. He, he puts you in his shoes and he walks you through the devastation and the darkness. He utilizes poetry and, and color and eyes filled with tears and a structure that rises and falls and then unravels to connect your emotions to the pain of exile. And that's no less true with the suffocating tragedy outlined in, in chapter 4. God wants us to learn from this tragedy. He wants us to see how sin destroys people how awful consequences come when we abandon God. Chapter 4 is the worst. Like chapters 1 and 2, he 
He again utilizes the acrostic pattern here. But at this point, he shortens it. Instead of three lines per verse, like we get in uh, chapters 1 and 2, he only uses two lines each verse. Here, it's, it's as if he's starting to run out of breath, like the suffering is too much and he's nearly spent. It's only the last two verses that give him any hope that God is going to act again. And it's enough to kind of give him one more burst of a prayer in chapter 5. Before we get to that hope, though, we must sludge through terrible again. For 20 verses, he he outlines a suffocating tragedy. Uh, The setting is what the people experience under Babylon's siege all the way up to when Babylon finally attacks the city and captures the king of Judah. And so let's break it into four parts here. First, the people are upended. The people are upended. This is verses 1 to 10. Verses 1 to 10 describe how the whole of their society gets flipped upside down. Okay, from top to bottom... Every relationship suffers disorder and a reversal of what ought to be. So in verses 1 and 2, the precious become worthless. Look at it. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold... How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. So he begins with gold, pure gold, holy stones. All these materials decorated the temple complex. They became precious to the people as they signified the beauty of God's presence and blessing. But notice the parallel structure here. He uses that imagery actually to describe people. The people of God, the the sons of Zion. When weighed against refined gold, the people themselves are, are priceless. But now they've been scattered, they've been torn down like a temple, and and they're no longer treated as precious people. They're they're kicked to the side of the road and laying in the dust. So the precious become worthless. Also, the nurturers become cruel. Look at verses 3 and 4. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. In Scripture, jackals often appear in context of judgment. Uh, they're, they're kind of the scavengers uh, of the dead wastelands. Uh, even these beasts are pictured here nursing their young. But Israel doesn't. They've become cruel like the ostrich, he says. And we learn a little bit about the ostrich in Job 39, don't we? The ostrich leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed. 
on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young. That's Job 39.14. Zion has become that. Uh, the created order is flipped upside down. In other words, man, man was supposed to rule over the beasts. But here they've become beasts, and in some cases worse than beasts. Such that the tongue of their nursing infants stick to the roof of their mouth. Now this imagery appears in context where people can't talk anymore. The point being, the baby is worse than thirsty. She's so thirsty, she can't even cry anymore. Next, the rich become rubbish. The rich become rubbish. Look at verses 5 and 6. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. So eating fancy, elegant attire, the rich. And now they've got nothing but whatever they can dig up from the ash heap. And even that's not enough to keep them alive. And the man looks at this and he says, my God, this is worse than Sodom. At least Sodom didn't have to keep suffering. They were gone in an instant. Next, the distinguished become destitute. In verse 7, the the ESV begins with her princes. Uh, Some of the older translations have her Nazarites. Either way, we're talking about very distinguished, perhaps even religiously distinguished uh, people in society. And, And he says this about them. He says, they were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. So this is a a jewel that was actually often associated with the beauty of the Lord's presence. So these people dazzle, in other words. But now it says their face is blacker than soot. And they're not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. You know things are really, really bad when people prefer to be a casualty of war. When they call being a casualty of war good, happier. And then when you thought it couldn't, it gets worse. The compassionate become cannibals. The compassionate become cannibals. Look at verse 10. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. I don't even know how to think about that. And I don't want to. But it happened. And God warned that this would happen. 
This is straight out of the curses of Deuteronomy 28. God told them that this would happen if they rejected His Word and worshipped the nation's idols. His hand of blessing would be removed. His hand of protection would be removed. The enemy's siege would become so cruel that the most refined man and the most, ref- and most tender woman would fight over who gets to eat their children. It's unthinkable. It, it's, it's, it's abhorrent. But this is what sin does. First and foremost, sin separates us from God's covenant blessings. And then it dehumanizes people. It turns society upside down. They know the cost of their sin. And they still chose it. That's slavery. That's bondage. When you know what it's going to do to your little girls. And you ignore it. You ignore God and you choose it anyway. That's slavery. To sin, and we ought to hate it. That's the people upended. The second part of the suffocating tragedy revolves around Israel's leaders being condemned. Israel's leaders are condemned. Uh, Verse 11 The Lord gave full vent to his wrath, he poured out his hot anger. And he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. In other words, God's judgment was in a secret. Right? He displayed his justice publicly. On multiple occasions, the nations watched God protect Jerusalem. Uh, just this week, I was, and I was reading in Second Chronicles how God sent an angel to cut off Sennacherib uh, from, from, from Jerusalem so that Hezekiah was then exalted among all the nations. But now, the nations witness God judging Jerusalem. What they thought was impossible would never happen, just happened. And what are they supposed to learn from this? That God does not tolerate sin. Yes, He's rich in steadfast love, but He will not let the guilty go unpunished. And that's what He explains in verse 13. But He focuses on the leaders in particular. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, it says, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. The blood there is coming from the blood of the righteous in the previous verse. They've got innocent blood on their hands. Verse 15, Away! Unclean people cried at them. Away! Away! Do not touch! So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord Himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests. No favor to the elders. In other words, they became so unclean that not even the nations wanted to have anything to do with them. 
These leaders were supposed to deliver God's word and apply God's word with wisdom. And apart from a few, you know, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, the majority didn't. As chapter 2, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 14, taught us, it says, Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes. And the priest, Ezekiel says that the priest did violence to God's law and they profaned God's holy things. And, as, and, and, and the elders too, they would, they would hide in the dark and they would sneak idols into the Lord's courts. And as goes the leaders, so go the people. And so the Lord's wrath fell on Zion and God exposed the leaders. Innocent blood was on their hands. He cut them off from His assembly much like a leper would be cut off from under the law. He scattered them among the nations without honor, without a people, and without a home. And then third, we find the city overrun. The city overrun. For months they hoped that Egypt would somehow intervene. That some other nation might come and and chase Babylon away like times before. But that proved to be a false hope. And after an 18 month siege, Babylon finally storms the gates. And the whole scenario unravels in verses 17 to 19. Our eyes failed ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps or or hunted us down so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. In other words, no matter where they ran, there was no escape. All of them were goners, even their king. And that's the fourth part of this suffocating tragedy. The king is captured. Verse 20. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. So it's talking about King Zedekiah here. Zedekiah tries to flee. You can read about this in 2 Kings 25. Zedekiah tries to flee, but they capture him. They sentence him. They kill all his sons. They put out his eyes. They bind him in chains. And they haul him off to Babylon. Now, why is that a big deal? Because he's the heir to David's throne. God's promises are bound up with the king from David's line. That's why he calls him the breath of our nostrils. The the nation's life depends on God fulfilling his promise to David's house. It's part of God's steadfast love. Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7. These prophecies. 
A forever king from David's line was supposed to come, sit on a forever throne, bring a forever kingdom, and bless all nations with a new world order and a new creation under the blessing of God's peace. But the heir was just hauled off to Babylon and all of his sons were murdered. That's why it's a suffocating tragedy. The breath of their nostrils is captured. The life just got squeezed out of them. So what now? That was 20 verses of terrible. What now? Is hope even possible here? And by God's mercy, it is. Uh, It's just a sliver... But verses 21 to 22 are the hope. Look at verse 21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but to you also shall the cup pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. So two things become obvious in verses 21 and 22. Your enemies will be judged. Your exile will end. Your enemies will be judged. Your exile will end. First, your enemies will be judged. Now the prophet Obadiah is really helpful here. Go home and read... Obadiah, just got one chapter, short. But it's helpful because because basically it tells the story of Edom. Edom has a, a terrible history opposing Israel. And that was no less the case when Babylon ransacked Jerusalem. Edom actually kind of stands back and watches them do it and then takes advantage of the situation. They loot the city of Jerusalem after Babylon wipes them out. And as they're doing it, they're gloating and rejoicing over the loot and and rejoicing over Israel's downfall. Which gives us some context as to why Lamentations 4.21 tells them rejoice. We're supposed to read it with irony. As if to say... Sure. Enjoy the day while it lasts, while it lasts, Edom. Have all the fun you want, but your day is coming. You will drink the cup of God's wrath. So their enemies won't get away with what they're, what, what they're doing. And God will glorify His justice by judging their enemies. He will right all wrongs, and that's part of the hope. But notice the other piece to Israel's hope. Their exile will end. Verse 22. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. Now check this out. The Hebrew behind our verb is accomplished. 
in verse 22. Your punishment is accomplished. Meaning it has come to an end. The only other place that that verb appears in Lamentations is in chapter 3, verse 22. But this time it's with a negative. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Or never comes to an end. Now, anybody reading chapter 4 would come to the end of uh, of that chapter and see not only their punishment is going to end, they would be reminded of what will never end. God's steadfast love. Even in and through the darkness of exile... Wrath was not the end in itself for God's people. There was a deeper purpose rooted in the Lord's steadfast love. His anger over their sins has an end. Their suffering has an end. The darkness has an end. Their enemies have an end. The pain will have an end. But God's love for them, oh, it never has an end. That's that's what you get when you're reading these chapters together. In other words, there's there's hope beyond the exile. And we have the privilege of knowing the rest of that story, don't we? You see, the breath of their nostrils, the Lord's anointed, may have been captured. And David's heir may have been dethroned and, and disciplined for his sin. But in steadfast love, that steadfast love that keeps going beyond the exile... God raised up another anointed king in David's line who had no sin. Jesus Christ. And He is the true king to end our exile by bringing us home to God. Now how does He do that? By living the life we should have lived but couldn't. And then by becoming a curse for us. Okay, the curses of the exile that we're reading about here, they they teach us that God must judge covenant breakers. He must judge lawbreakers. And if you've broken God's law, you deserve God's wrath. Galatians teaches us in chapter 3, verse 10, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things in the book of the law and do them. That's the bad news for all of us. Because we're lawbreakers. But here's the good news. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, it says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we may receive the promised Spirit through faith. So Jesus died to take away our sin, that sin, that same sin that turns humanity upside down. That same sin that warrants curse and exile and banishment. Jesus died. He was cursed. He was banished. He was exiled on the cross to satisfy God's wrath completely in our place and bring us home to God. 
And more than ever, God's people can truly say, our punishment is accomplished. Our punishment has come to an end in the death of Jesus because all of God's wrath and all of God's curses were poured out on Him in our place. Even more, there's more to this good news. Now with Jesus risen from the dead, vindicated above every power in heaven and earth, we have a king who cannot be captured. He reigns in the Jerusalem that is above. Galatians 4 says that everybody who belongs to Jesus belongs to that Jerusalem from above. Hebrews 12 says that we've received that unshakable kingdom with Jesus enthroned. And that's true of us right now. And at the same time, we're also waiting for the city that is to come, right? This isn't our final home. Jesus is bringing a city, a new Jerusalem in a new earth that cannot be overrun by enemies. Right? They're going to be destroyed. The enemies will be destroyed outside the new city. But inside the city that will cover the earth, His people will be forever restored. And society will be rightly ordered beneath His Lordship. Ashes will be traded for beauty. Weeping will be replaced with joy. The hungry will be satisfied. The prisoners set free. And all of our laments will find their answer in His presence. That's the good news. But that day hasn't come yet. Jesus reigns over the heavenly Jerusalem now. He he has seated us with Him now. Our curse is over now in Christ. But goodness, these days still hurt. They're still full of pain. We look around, it's like all we see is the wreckage of Babylon. Babylon. And the darkness of this present evil age. So how should a tragedy like chapter 4, as well as this sliver of hope, how should these things impact us while we wait for Christ's kingdom to come in its fullness? Right, Our punishment is ended. It was taken care of in Christ. We belong to the new Jerusalem, but we're not quite there yet fully. How do we wait? What do we do here? And what should chapter 4 lead us to do during these days? Number one, and what I say is going to be different from what you see on the screen, at least for this first one, because I forgot to edit it. But lament sins horrific consequences and abstain from the passions of your flesh. Lament sends horrific consequences and abstain from the passions of your flesh. Sin is rebellion against God in any form. Word, thought, deed, affection. Lamentation serves us by not turning a blind eye to sin. I mean, it actually looks at sin 
And it studies sin. And it studies its awful consequences. And it gives us the awful consequences in vivid detail. And it laments sin's presence in the world and in our lives. I was reminded this week that uh, 1 Peter refers to Christians as exiles. So 1 Peter 1.17 says, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. But then in 1 Peter 2.11 it says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. So the tragedy of Lamentations 4 gives us plenty reason to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Sin separates us from God and His covenant blessings. This is what we see when you look in at chapter 4. It separates us from God and His covenant blessings. Sin destroys relationships at every level. Sin upends the created order and it turns people into beasts. Sin takes everything that's colorful and vibrant and beautiful and turns it into an ash heap. Sin also has far-reaching consequences. Right? Your sin doesn't stop with you. I don't care how private and hidden you think you're keeping it, it does not stop with you. Look at what it did to the children and the children's children and their children. Listen to Lamentations 4. And make chapter 4 one further motivation to be killing sin in your life, lest it be killing you and others. Second, lament when leaders fail and pray for your leaders' enduring faithfulness. Lament when leaders fail and pray for your leaders' enduring faithfulness. As a leader of my wife, as a leader of my children, and as a leader of this church, I find verses 11 and 13 very sobering. The Lord gave full vent to His wrath. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. They stopped correcting people's sin. They let idolatry continue. They grew comfortable with their own idolatry. And God's wrath came. I am, I'm sobered by that. I'm not beyond what happened to these leaders. I'm just as vulnerable. We need your prayers for enduring faithfulness here. A couple weeks ago, Joshua Harris not only separated from his wife, he walked away from Jesus too. He was a well-known leader in the church. And many looked up to him, including myself. It is right and appropriate to lament Joshua's apostasy. 
other leaders aren't claiming to walk away from Christianity, but they're trying to change its historical convictions about life, marriage, sexuality, gender, justice, personal identity. And Lamentations gives us a language to speak when leaders fail like this and lead people astray. It's wrong to overlook the sins of leaders because, hey, he's my buddy. Or because, hey, I do the same thing. Or because, hey, it might shake things up a bit. Or because, hey, he has letters behind his name. Or because, hey, we might lose money in the popularity. The right response when leaders fail is lament. Lament for them and lament for how vulnerable we ourselves are to the same failures. Gosh, we were, we were somewhat shaken by Joshua Harris's move away from Christianity. And we were talking about it in, in the elders' meeting. And uh, it was a meaningful moment. It was a very sobering moment. And I remember Dale just putting his hand down and saying, Not here, brothers. And looking us dead in the face as a dad would. Tears in his eye. Not here. We have to care for one another and hold one another accountable. We need to lament not as an end in itself, but as an expression of our trust in the Lord. He is the one who leads His people. We never have to question His motives or whether His words are true. The Lord is always right. He is the one who leads and preserves His people. Pray that He preserves us. Pray for your leaders that He protect us and keep us faithful to the Word. And if you're a member here, participate in the process of discerning leaders. Which elders and deacons should lead the church and in a manner that pleases Him. We get the opportunity to do that today at the, elder, at, the, at the members meeting. The sins of leaders have severe consequences on God's people. Chapter 4 teaches us that. Third, set your hope in God and not in earthly comforts, leaders, or nations. Set your hope in God and not in earthly comforts, leaders, or nations. Israel grew way too comfortable in the promised land. Multiple times the prophets say how Israel became full. Uh, Their heart was lifted up in in, in pride and as if they didn't need the Lord anymore. They had everything. And yet we see here how the Lord stripped every comfort away to replace it with Himself. He has to be their comfort and joy and satisfaction. And the same with the leaders. They put undue amount of trust in their leaders to the point where it was the blind leading the blind. And yet God scattered the leaders to replace them with Himself, right? To give them a true prophet and a true priest and a true king in the Lord Jesus Christ. And also we find them setting their hope in political alliances with other nations. In verse 17 it says, In our watching, 
We watched for a nation which could not save. I couldn't help but think of the way many people, even some Christians, watch for America to save the world. We should be thankful for the freedoms we enjoy, but never should this nation or any political system become the object of our hope. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Jesus Christ and His kingdom alone is our hope. And then finally, in the worst darkness, the Lord brings hope for His people. In the worst darkness, the Lord brings hope for His people. You might be in the darkest moment of your life right now. Or maybe you know somebody who's in the dark, darkest moment of their life right now. This is definitely one of the darkest moments in Jerusalem's life. It squeezed the life out of them as a nation. And the circumstances in your life might be squeezing the life out of you right now. Whether that's due to your own sins, or these sins that others have committed against you, or just due to living in a broken, fallen world. And yet, what do we find in chapter 4? We find a God who meets us there. We find a God who meets us in the darkest of moments. A God who then steps in and gives them hope. Reminding them that He would act to save them again. He is a God who meets people in the darkest places to bring them hope. Hope of a new beginning of a new creation, of a new life, of a new love, of a new obedience. And all of which He brings about through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, beloved. And He promises to come again to bring us into that city with Him. And that's good news for us. And that's also good news for your neighbors as well. Your neighbors may be battling suicidal thoughts. Your neighbors might have just lost their granddaughter in a car accident. Your neighbors might be sitting in loneliness every night, not knowing where to turn. Your neighbors might have parents who are drunk and abusive all the time, and they're looking for someone to help. And our Father meets people right there to bring them hope in His Son. And as His children, we reflect our Father's character. As His children, we should identify with them in their darkness. We should weep with them in their suffocating tragedy. We should share the hope that God has brought in Jesus and look to care for them. Because our tragedies will have an end. But God's steadfast love never ends. And that is our hope. Let's take the supper together.
This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.